Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. This is the Other People Show Thank you for tuning in. I hope everything is going okay, as okay as it can go in this world right now, as presently constituted. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. My guest today is Lauren Markham author of a new book called A Map of Future Ruins. You know, I published a book in 2017 about migration from El Salvador, and I'd covered just border politics in the U.S. for so long, and I was feeling pretty bereft and forlorn and overwhelmed, and I was just walking in circles. I was, I was banging my head against the same wall and sort of shouting into the, the same things into the same void. And so I had a sense of like, all right, I, it's not that I don't want to cover or write about migration anymore, but maybe I need to look elsewhere in order to in order to see things more clearly or differently. And in fact, that's what ended up happening. The parallels between what's happening in Greece and what's happening in the United States are so remarkable that it made me, it was like a new prism to look through to understand migration in the U.S. All right, that was Lauren Markham. Her new book is called A Map of Future Ruins, available from Riverhead Books. A Map of Future Ruins is a work of nonfiction, a braided narrative that includes elements of reportage, history, memoir, and essay. At its core, it's about human migration and the immigration crises currently unfolding around the world. Over the course of the book, Lauren Markham explores her own family's immigration history, traveling to Greece in search of her heritage, 
and to cover the aftermath of a fire that burned down Moria, the largest refugee camp in all of Europe. I had a really fascinating conversation with Lauren Markham. That is coming up in just a bit. A reminder that I have a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at bradlisty.substack.com. You can also join the Other People Patreon community at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. He'll keep this show going into the future. If you would like to join the Other People Book Club, you can do that at otherppl.com, the show's official website. Get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. It's only $9.99. That's less than the cost of a paperback. I interview book club authors on this program. Today's episode is brought to you by Mary Sue Rucci Books, publisher of the novel The Storm We Made by Vanessa Chan, a recent guest on this program. The Storm We Made is the official February pick of the Other People Book Club. It is a national bestseller, a sweeping epic about an unlikely spy and a secret love affair set in Malaysia during the Second World War. That's The Storm We Made, the debut novel by Vanessa Chan, available from Mary Sue Rucci Books. All right, so my guest once again is Lauren Markham. Her new book is called A Map of Future Ruins, available from Riverhead Books. Lauren Markham is also the author of a book called The Far Away Brothers. It was published to wide acclaim by Crown in 2017. She has been working with migrants for two decades and has written about migration and other social issues in a variety of publications, including the New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, the New York Review of Books, and elsewhere. I am very pleased to have Lauren Markham on this show and to have gotten the chance to talk with her about this new book of hers, which covers some very important territory. So here we go with today's conversation. This is Lauren Markham, and her new book, once again, is called A Map of Future Ruins. It's funny because I actually think there is some way that my own family's migration story, which I which I write about in this book, loomed really large in my family story of itself and in my upbringing, even though, as I write in the book, I have never, I had never been to Greece until 2019, until I was well into adulthood. I didn't speak Greek and most of my living family members had, don't and hadn't either. But I think that because the story of uprooting and coming to a new place and finding place and, and belonging and struggling to find place and belonging was so much of, of the storytelling that I grew up with, it made me really curious from a really young age about what that journey was like for other people and what that experience was like for other people. And I saw really early on the injustices and also the asymmetry between the stories that my family told and held that were more valorous and happy ending in nature than the stories that contemporary migrants all over the world were afforded. So your great-grandmother yeah, immigrated from from mm-hmm. Andros. Yeah, Andros Island. Mm-hmm. In Greece. And was it that narrative, like her personal narrative that loomed largest for you growing up? I feel like yeah. you write about how her personal journey really affected yeah. you. 
Yeah, her personal journey. But it's interesting. I, I grew up with far fewer stories about Greece than I did about um, New Haven, and where she, which is ultimately where she landed. And she was a single mom. At, she was a widow raising four children by as a new, relatively new immigrant by the age of 24. So a lot of the stories that I grew up hearing were actually about the Greek diaspora in in the Connecticut area. So I, I knew less about Greece, but I knew that Greek, that being Greek was important to who she was and then who I was. If Even though, and that's something I sort of grapple with in the book, even though Greece itself had very little to, to do with it in many ways. Yeah, I get that. I feel like my Sicil- the, the Sicilian part of my family is definitely like the ethnic origin story that prevailed. Right. Right. And I right. didn't exactly. grow I didn't grow I didn't grow up going there, but that was the one that right. I felt the most. And so I guess if yeah. you feel it and, the most, you become most curious about it. Yeah, absolutely. And you sort of like, well, what does this feeling mean? What is this feeling about? Um, because on the one hand, the condition of of diaspora is being far flung and being out of place. And then on the other hand, I think especially like generations in in the United States of America and especially in like white US America there's somewhat of a fiction of belong. I mean, there's a great fiction of belonging, right? So yeah, one of the things my book grapples with is this instinct to kind of belong and be from somewhere. Um, and the sort of multiple ways that manifests sometimes in, in these sort of beautiful just d- desires to be curious about self and ancestry. And sometimes, and perhaps actually a lot more often in these mythological tales that valorize whiteness and valorize the past and erase what actually happened. So what do you make of the current situation, especially in the United States with respect to immigration? Because I think it's always been something of an issue. I mean, from the Mm -hmm. founding of this country, right? Like everyone Mm -hmm. except for native peoples came here from somewhere. And right now it feels like such a political hot button particularly the southern border of the United States. And it has been since, really, I feel like since Trump kind of came down the escalator and made his first speech Mm -hmm. where he Mm -hmm. called uh, Mexican immigrants, you know, or people trying to come over at the southern border criminals and rape, you know, rapists and all that sort of thing. Uh, Does that, does that track? Like, I don't, I'm not an expert on the history of all this stuff, but that definitely feels like a pivot point in terms of the national conversation and then it continues yeah. to be, especially on the American right, like such a mm-hmm. emotional hot button. Yeah. Like, yeah. Do you have a Do you have a sense of, of why why everything has gotten so intense around this issue? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely Trump certainly inflamed it. I would say, though, Trump one of the things he's masterful at is actually seeing something in the zeitgeist and exploding it, right? And exploiting it. The fact is that our immigration system has been incredibly vicious, violent, uh, exclusionary, and effectively like a a war machine for for decades, for generations. Um, You know, it was under Ronald Reagan that the first private prison company, the first private immigration detention center was formed 
And he also put a quota saying that, you know, I think it was something like 10,000 a night. So we we must be locking up 10,000 a night. So it's like we have a minimum, a mandatory minimum of immigrants we must be locking up. So I would say that like this has been happening for a really long time. And one of the things that my book traces is that it's really from the beginning of this country that immigration exclusions have been from early, early on that immigration exclusions have been enacted. And this sort of idea of who gets to come and who doesn't, and that that's very managed often along lines of race and also kind of class and privilege, but but race first and foremost. And Trump has just done like a, a remarkable job capitalizing on this and making this an issue. And like many other strongmen throughout the world are doing this thing where it's saying like any, it's, they're creating a villain, right? Out of out of the outsider. The outsider is a villain. It's not a refugee. It's this the person coming here isn't seeking safety. They're coming to take what's yours. They're coming to ruin the economy. They're coming to take your jobs. They're coming to rape your children. They are coming to, you know, bring their horrific gang practices here. Whatever it is, they are coming to hurt you. And the thing that's really disturbing about that is a it's not true. <laughs> there are multiple things that are disturbing about this. A it's not true. No one is come. That is not why. Uh, it's almost like too silly to sort of defend. But that is, that is not why <laughs> people come here. And that is, yeah. I'll just say that. But the other thing is is that it is there is a it is a really expensive industry, right? So so many resources are put toward the militarization of our border, it's incredibly expensive. So we marshal all of these resources to the border to defend it. We've created an imaginary invader. We marshal all of these financial and human resources to defend this border and spend just so much money doing that when... So we've effectively manufactured a crisis, right? Um, And then are spending a ton of money to attend to that crisis. And I think another really disturbing thing, one of the um, writers I really lean on in this book and is a is a academic and theorist who passed away a few years ago named Svetlana Boym. And she writes a lot about this idea of sort of nostalgia and this notion of this, this idea of like a mythic past, right? That and that's 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 Trump, right? She was writing before Trump, by the way, but that's this mythic past. There's this mythic past that we will return to where the United States was white and things were good and things were fine. And if we batten down the hatches and, you know, close off the borders and don't let these people come and call them from what they are for what they are, which is criminals and invaders, then we will be able to return to this time. And of course the time is a fiction. The time is that 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 that's a fictional time that people are are hankering back toward. And there's a troubling element of that, which is people, if they are convinced that they are under siege, we begin to cede our own liberties, right? And those of us who have the protections of citizenship on the inside start to say, okay, Yes, I will cede my own liberties. You can build a wall through my through through my you know through my yard in Texas, and you know various civil liberties civil liberties that I have. I'm I'm sort of happy to put aside because it's for the good of my protection to do so, and that's really scary for like the whole country. So the thing that you're talking about, where people hearken back to this mythical better past. I believe it's mm-hmm. called restorative nostalgia. Is that Svetlana yes. Boyum's term? Well done. Yes. Yeah. Gold yes. star for me. But the Gold thing that frust- star. <laughs> the thing that frustrates me about it is that you have to be like almost willfully ignorant of any yeah. history yep. in order to yep. buy into that. It doesn't take a great education to just think, oh, wow, you know, 
There's nobody yep. here in the United States aside from native peoples yep. who is not an immigrant. Right. And yep. yet people still believe somehow <laughs> that this isn't the case. It's yep. so frustrating because it's so dumb. And it is. A question that I have for you as I listen to you with respect to the militarization of the border and all these resources that we're throwing at it and with the kind of corporate, private enterprise that exists within the detention system. These are businesses, the profits of which are contingent upon those cells being full. Like they're not making money unless they're detaining people. So their, their incentive structure is at cross purposes with like humane outcomes really for people who are seeking asylum or a better life or whatever. So comprehensive immigration reform would ruin these companies. And I presume they are lobbying people in Congress. And it's easier to lobby people in Congress when you can convince them that that they or their constituents are at risk if you don't continue to exist, right? You don't lobby and say, but we'll lose all of our money. You lobby and say, this is necessary. We need this. You know, we need to protect the people from these immigrants. So two questions. Uh, We'll go one at a time. The first one is, you talk about how people who are trying to cross over at the border are often characterized, mischaracterized as criminals and they're coming to take what's yours and all this stuff. In your experience as somebody who has covered borders all over the world and has met Mm -hmm. and heard the stories of so many people who are in this situation, generally speaking, what are people who are trying to cross over at the border, just say at the United States Southern border looking to do? Well, why are they there generally? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because one of the things that my book, sort of tangles with is is not wanting to render any class of people and certainly not immigrants first and foremost as as any kind of monolith but statistically it is the case that the vast majority of people crossing the southern border are 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 applying for protection they're applying for political asylum they're they're applying to they're applying for safe haven effectively um and that is what they're looking for and that is what they want. Of course, it is like economics are also a factor where people are, are coming because there's aspects of their home lives that have become unlivable. But I don't know, economic migrant has been, has sort of come into this, it's, it's become kind of a dirty word almost like, oh, they're just an economic migrant. They aren't a real refugee. As if being unable to feed your family isn't, you know, a, a form of peril. It's not a, it's not a protectable it's not a protectable category in asylum law, but it's perplexing to me that it's a dirty word, especially because like, that's exactly why my great grandmother, you know, my, my great, great grandmother came here with my, with my great grandmother. So, yeah. Well, no, I mean, that's a, that's a point that you make in the book is that asylum law does not allow for poverty as a condition Mm -hmm. to seek asylum. So if you're impoverished and starving and you can't feed your kids, not good enough. And then you also make a, there's also a point in the book that I underlined where, and I'm going to paraphrase it, you're talking about things that are permissible under, you know, American asylum law, where you can say, I have been Mm -hmm. persecuted in my home country. I am, you know, afraid for my life and the life of my family. Look at this scar on my cheek. Mm -hmm. And yet, how do you prove that the scar on your cheek was given to you by one of your possible assailants or somebody in organized crime or something versus, you know, it's an injury that you sustained while farming. 
It's yeah. like the burden of proof on people seeking yeah. asylum is really tricky for them to bear. Absolutely. You actually paraphrased that beautifully. And that is the thing is that we don't necessarily, if we're fleeing something, we don't flee that thing with like all of this documentation of the thing happening. And so many conflicts and so much violence is structural and isn't like provable by by design, right? That like the threats that if you're getting threats from the government, like it's not necessary. It's not, there's not like some dossier of it somewhere, right? You kind of have to collect it, which is a high burden of proof when you're trying to save your own life that you didn't sort of travel with the paperwork you need to prove that you're saving your own life. It's a bit of a, a loop and a tangle. So to the average person who is not like super deep into the weeds on this stuff and doesn't maybe even read a newspaper on a daily basis because not because they're dumb, but just because they're too busy just trying to survive, which I think describes yeah. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the casual observer might flip on the news one day a week or something and see this footage of mm-hmm. thousands of people at the border. And I'm not talking about like the the, the quote unquote caravan footage, which is often- right you know, uh, what's the word for it? It's, it's not even accurate. It's not like, sensationalized. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like there are, there are legitimately thousands of people gathered at certain points along the Southern border. And an average person might look at that and be like, this is chaos. Like we need to, we need to protect our border. We need to have a border. We need order at the border. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you say to those people? Yeah. I say that the disorder is of our own making. You know, it's not like it, we we have our this our the U.S. government has created this disorder because it serves us. So the reason so many people, thousands of people, are along the southern border is because we closed it for years and we used an obscure public health law to say during COVID to say, oh yeah, we can't title 43, we were because of COVID, we're not going to let you in. You have to remain in Mexico and stay on the Mexican side. And so that was lifted in the scheme of things relatively recently by Biden. And yet it, 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 I I won't go into like all the sort of legal, all the sort of legal drama here um, because it is too far in the weeds and I'll make people kind of go to sleep and, or throw up their hands and just say, forget it. But the, the, the point is, is that we, we have created this, we have created a situation in which there is no, we bottlenecked, right. uh, People coming for asylum. And then we have this footage saying, look at this horrible bottleneck, you know? So that's a sort of simplified version. I will also say it is true that there are a lot of people coming here it has been true for a really long time that people are crossing into the United States. Like that has been true for a very long time. So it is both true. It is also kind of historically there, there are times in our history when there have been a lot more people coming, but this is the biggest project. I mean, migration is only going to rise and there are all sorts of reasons for that inequality, ease of information of like how to get somewhere and how to, and, and, and figuring out, pathways and routes. And, you know, climate change is is a huge one. So sure, we can say this is a problem, but this is a problem that is that was predictable, that we've known for a very long time. And when I say problem, I don't mean like, it's not that people are coming across our border is the problem in my eyes. And I, and I think I'm right about this. The problem is the suffering that we inflict upon, the needless suffering that we inflict upon them and the needless resources that we put into detaining, hunting down, 
and criminalizing the people coming across our border instead of figuring out a reasonable humane mechanism, right? And I just want to point out that like at the beginning on the Greek island of Lesbos, which is 90,000 people in two starting in 2015, there were some days that a thousand people were landing on that island. Really high unemployment rates. This was in the wake of the debt crisis still in Greece. And people were figuring out on that island how to rally and support and 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 serve people who were coming. That started to curdle, that started to change. We're not seeing that same thing today, but it is possible and various other countries around the world have shown and have demonstrated more humane and and more humane systemic ways of figuring out how to manage migration flows. It seems like something that not just the United States but countries around the world that are receiving lots of people at their border are going to have to figure out there's yes, going to exactly. have there's going to have to be a system and what's frustrating too is that there was just a deal on immigration some form of immigration yeah. reform that yeah. republicans have been hollering for and then they passed it in the senate i don't know how great the bill was i didn't get super into the details but they passed something something Yep. And then they send it over to the house and the house kills it. And not only that, like the guy who negotiated it for the Republicans in the Senate is from Oklahoma, Senator Langford, who is mm-hmm. by any measure a like rock ribbed conservative. This yeah. is not a rhino, right? This is a no. guy who's like yeah. as red as it gets. He was like, this is a good bill. Biden negotiated with him. The Democrats negotiated with him. They send it to the Republicans in the house and they kill it, not because they disagree with what's in it, but because they simply want to preserve the chaos so that Trump can yes. run on it as a wedge exactly. issue in the election. That is the height exactly. of cynicism. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The height of cynicism and exactly what I mean about a manufactured crisis. So there is a way of looking at the footage in the news saying like, oh my gosh, there are all these people running across. And there's a way of, of looking at that, which is the way I tend to look at it. Like, oh, what have we done to create this set of conditions that is ultimately causing 
the suffering first and foremost of migrating people, but is not good for the United States either, right? And the people living, the people living here, and the people living in the in the border zones. Um, the only thing it's doing is supporting cynical politicians to to run on this as a as a platform and private companies who are making a ton of money, not just on you know not just on the prisons, but on the you know the phone companies that people use to call the systems like this that courts are are contracting to um, have remote court uh, and all you know all sorts of all sorts of private companies profiting off of migration well it seems like in a country as you know divided and polarized as the United States currently is that we should at least be able to agree on the basic fact that all of us except for native peoples <laughs> came here from somewhere and I know that right. there have to be systems to like onboard people. And I get that it's like a huge human crisis to manage, right? I mean, these are lives that yeah. you have to, you have to find some, like what, where are people going to stay? Yeah. How are they going to get healthcare? What, what, yeah. Are they going to be able to drive? You know, all these different things like that you have yeah. to figure out, but I think we, we should figure them out. And it doesn't seem like it's impossible to do. It just, there has to be the no. political will. Yeah, right. I mean, I've, you know, I wrote a piece on public schools recently, and it's kind of like looking into the history and that talk about a flawed system. But like, you know, in a matter of a couple of decades, we went from sort of not really any sort of centralized school systems, like universal public education everywhere. Like if we could do that in the 18, in the mid 1800s, like we can figure like this is a figure outable thing. And I, I also because I just want to be clear, because I think sometimes there's this idea that thinking about immigration is just a matter of morality and humanity. And I think it's easy to sort of be like, ah, bleeding heart liberals, like, you know, okay, just like throw more money at like another social problem. Sure. But like the, the actual sort of deeply frustrating thing to me that I need to make sure I pound the pavement a little bit here. And I, I, I try to do it as much as I can is that it's also just take out all of the morality Financially, this is not a good deal for the United States. We're spending a ton of money that's enriching, you know, these these, these companies that aren't, by the way, like they're big. You, you, private contractors are big employers, but they are not um, such big employers. You know, mostly that money is going to executives at the top, right? But it's also the case there have been all of these studies that we could be, for instance, if we got rid of of, of immigration detention. It costs about $140 per day per person to be in immigration detention. There are alternatives to detention that are proven that cost about $25 a day. Similarly, Wait, not what are very they? Leftly, uh, it, it's like uh, get, getting released um, and having like a case manager that checks in on you that you have to go check in with once a week and make sure you go to your immigration court. Um, that th that those people are just as likely to get to their immigration. Th those people will go to their immigration court like 98% of the time. Um, the, the studies show. And that's what Belgium does. And there's, you know, there's a, f Greece does not have this model of, you know, of, of detention. Greece does not have a great model, but does not detain their immigrants. And I sort of found myself, I mean, this is an aside, but sort of found myself perplexed, like, my gosh, yeah, this is really horrible, but like, at least they're not in prison, which made me realize sort of how inured I was to the system. But so there are all these alternatives to detention, but there's also research that shows that if we created pathways to citizenship for the roughly 11 million undocumented people here, the GDP of this country would like boom, you know, and, and it's not like left, super lefty think tanks that are doing this research. So I don't know, it, it just seems incredibly frustrating to me that it's, 
this is both a moral and financial bad thing. <laughs> um, well, and I mean, yet we also, continue to do it. I was going to say, it's also like a moral and financial uh, equation that isn't really that hard to parse. Like it's right. positive. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like yep. there, are, there are way more positives than negatives. Yep. And it just seems like the basic human thing to do. Like, what are you going to do? Deport? I mean, I feel like if Trump were to regain power, there would be some effort made to deport millions of people. Like, I feel like that would be coming. Yeah. That would be Certainly chaos. thousands, hundreds. Of, yeah, yeah, it would be chaos. It would be chaos. So, um, so I know we got to get to And it Greece, would be really but... bad for business uh, for a lot of conservative people as well. You know, like I live in California and I've done a fair amount of agricultural reporting and it's like 67% of people here picking our food um, are undocumented. What's going to happen when they're not here anymore? That's right. How are you going to get your right. food? That's right. Well, I want to, we're going to get to Greece, but I do want to ask mm -hmm. a question about the border and, yeah. and conversations that I've had with friends of mine on the left, like the ultra progressive left. Yeah. Uh, I've had, I have a friend who's like, there should be no borders anywhere. <laughs> like borders are, are, uh, fictions, which they are. Mm -hmm. You say this in your they book, are. borders are fictions. Mm -hmm. And yeah. whenever I have those conversations, I think in theory, I'm on board. I'm like, yeah, you know, borders are fictions. Like, yeah, like just open up the world, you know, like in a perfect yeah. world, there would be none of these fictional lines dividing us and people could just travel the earth as part of the human family. But when it comes to conventional reality and the way that human beings seem to be, well, like how would that work if you just got rid of borders? Like, where do you fall on that as somebody who's thought about all of this? Like, do you think there should be no yeah. borders in the world? Or do you think that borders are like a necessary evil for now in this particular state of human evolution? Yeah. I do not think that borders are a necessary evil in the state of today's um, human evolution. I think that, and, and again, this sort of anecdote of being in Greece and seeing that these horrific camp conditions and seeing my own brain do this thing of of like, yeah, this is so horrific, but like, it's not as bad as the United States because there we lock people up. It's, you know, they're like, these are prison-like conditions. And I'm like, well, in the United States, it's actually like prison. They've kind of got, they can leave sometimes here. Like, I think that we get really stuck in the realities, um, even if we're, if we are opposed, if we oppose them, and even as we criticize them, we can get stuck in the realities that exist because it's hard to imagine beyond them. And I guess there is, you know, this is a very U.S. American thing to imagine possibility beyond what is. And so I think the invitation is, is not to sort of say just, well, how would that work? Because I can't, how would that work with all the systems that we have? I think what it requires is like a massive global systems transformation, which honestly I think is coming whether we like it or not, because I think the thing about climate change is it's going to erode so many places and erode so many it just destroys so many homes that the, the number of people that are going to be moving and the places that they are going to be able to move is already fundamentally reshaping like the way this world is. So we can get ahead of that and imagine a world where borders, you know, perhaps aren't fully meaningless. Like I've, I've heard multiple arguments of this, that it's like, it's not that you wouldn't have a passport and a nationality and a citizenship. It's that there'd be freedom of motion among them under certain conditions or, you know, like there are all sorts of ways. It's not just like borders, yes or no. Um, I think it's sort of about reimagining a world in which so many resources are not put toward 
defending these borders like at all financial and human costs. I also want to put a plug for a recent book um, by the journalist John Washington called The Case Against Borders, where he writes much more thoroughly and eloquently about sort of like what, what that means and what this could look like. Okay. Well, let's talk about Greece because it figures centrally into your life, your personal <laughs> history and like life story, and also into your book and the travels that you write about. As you said earlier, you had not been to Greece in your life, despite being of Greek heritage until you were well into adulthood. I think it was 2019 was your first trip, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. this was both journalistic and personal, yeah. Yeah. this trip in nature. You wanted to explore your roots a little bit, but you also were thinking of yeah. covering the migration crisis through a Greek lens. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I was sort of curious about, you know, okay, well, we have this mythic origin story about Greece and my family. What's that all about? You know, I was curious to go there. I mean, I'd always wanted to go and I, I hadn't for a long time because I was trying to go with my grandmother and that just sort of like never panned out. But yeah, I went in 2019. And that was also a time, you know, I'd published a book in 2017 about migration from El Salvador. And I'd covered just border politics in the US for so long. And I was feeling pretty bereft and forlorn and overwhelmed. And like, I was just circling the same, I was just walking in circles. I was, I was banging my head against the same wall and sort of shouting into the, the same things into the same void. And so I had a sense of like, all right, I, it's not that I don't want to cover or write about migration anymore, but maybe I need to look elsewhere in order to in order to see things more clearly or differently. And in fact, that's what ended up happening. The parallels between what's happening in Greece and what's happening in the United States are so remarkable um, that it made me, it was like a new prism to look through to understand migration in the US. So it was like the, that first trip, it was like, it was sort of a vacation. It was sort of a report. I mean, I was there for like a month, um, sort of a reporting trip. And there was some curiosity about my family. I was definitely there in search of, information about my family, kind of, but also really suspicious of that project to begin with. And that was interesting to me. Yeah. It's also, it's a lovely place to get to go. I mean, yeah, visit. not a bad place to be like, <laughs> to go for a month. So I want to ask you too about the project of journalism versus the project of working on a book. You, There's mm -hmm. a line uh, in your book that I underlined where you t you're talking about the trouble with journalism where you say, see how a story can compress time like a vice and how the journalist like a puppeteer chooses what matters. That is what appears on the page. And then you also talk about this journalistic uh, phrase, what it's called the nut graph. <laughs> and, you know, I think journalism is vital. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in it. And I love to read the news. I love to read long form investigative journalism. But there are some subjects in particular that I think require the level of deep dive attention that a book length project affords. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be where you've landed when it comes to the migration, yeah. right? And, and like the immigration <laughs> politics is that, yeah. yes, journalism matters. Yes, it's good to write stories in that form about this stuff. But at a certain point, at least you needed to write books about it. Yeah, I think... I think a couple of things. I mean, to be clear, I'm still a journalist and I still write journalism and I am a deep believer in it. I'm a reader of it and like, thank God for journalism. But I, it, this book is in part 
both a product of and a process of me grappling with what it means to be a journalist and to be writing, like, how does one write ethically about unethical things in the world? How does one write ethically about realities that are outside of themselves? How does, uh, how do ethical stories get created when fundamentally a story is something that is designed by the storyteller, not the characters that the stories are about, right? And I even sort of call into question that notion of like people become characters on the page, right? In, in a journalistic story. So I'm not throwing all of that out the window. The, this sort of, thread of the book is 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 grappling with some discomforts I had around it, particularly given this reality in which I felt again and again, like I was just sort of writing a similar story over and over and started to think like, okay, to what end, you know, and also why am I writing it the same way? Like, why do these stories have really similar beats? Like why, why is it that these people who are really, really different are getting sort of folded into similar narratives. Um, so those were questions I had about my own writing process and writing in general, and that's something I'm grappling with here for sure. Um, and in terms of the book, I mean, yeah, a book affords more space. Um, and I talk about, you know, a book can afford more space. And so, you know, so too, like a long form piece where you're not just telling the version of the story that's interesting to you, which I think is a mistake a lot of reporters make to say like, here's what's interesting to me. And I think what good reporters do is start with that. And then over the course of the reporting, realize that the main thing that they think is interesting isn't actually, that you're kind of open enough you're committed enough to the story, but open enough and porous enough to sort of understand that there are actually such so many other elements that um, are interesting. And you're kind of following the story a little bit more as you get to know it. And I think there's just more space for that, for simultaneity, for multiple realities to be existing at once in the book. And to just be a little bit more, because I know I'm sort of getting esoteric here, but to be a little bit more specific, you know, it's not just that this person is a migrant in incredibly living in incredibly horrific conditions who is imprisoned for setting a fire that on all likelihood they did not set which is you know a central story in the book but this is someone who's funny and this is someone who likes to watch television in prison and this is somebody who had a life before they were a migrant and this is somebody you know like how do you allow someone to be kind of fuller than just the story that interests you about them yeah well you're talking about the Moria Six, when yes. you refer to this this fire, and I think to a lot of people listening, the word Moria will not be familiar. So, can we just no. talk a little bit about what Moria is in Greece? Yeah, it was the biggest refugee camp in all of Europe. It was widely decried as a human rights graveyard, an open air prison. It it was built for thirty five hundred first twenty five hundred, then expanded to housed 3,500 people. And at the height of the pandemic, over 20,000 people were living there and were crammed there. And in 2020, the about 11,000 people were living there at that point. And um, so I say right before the height of the pandemic, like when the pandemic hit, about 20,000 people were living there. In September of 2020, it uh, a massive fire broke out and burned down most of the camp uh, and set all of the refugees living there kind of like on the run within within Greece. And, you know, this horrific case of their, their, their camp is on fire, their temporary home that was already horrific is on fire, and they get stopped in the streets and they have to live in the streets for over a week because the fascists are blocking, the sort of fascist thugs are blocking one road and then the police are blocking the other and tear gassing anyone who's trying to get through. So anyway, this this fire happened and you know as i as i believe now i think greece the greek government needed 
a fall guy or needed like a clean, you know, talk about like the clean arc, like they needed a story, you know, a linear story, like fire was set. It was these, you know, here's who did it. Um, And they kind of manufactured, as far as I can tell, this story of these six kids being being responsible for it. And they've been in prison ever since September of 2020. And the guy that you feature in the book, I'm looking for his name here. Is it Ali Sayed? Yep. Ali and then Hassan is another one that I talk about, but Ali is, um, I write about most. Yeah. And he's an Afghani who was trying to make it to Germany as I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people, a lot of migrants in Europe are trying to make it to Germany, Germany, France, UK. Yeah. But, uh, it's a harrowing story. And then to be caught up in the Greek legal system or really any legal system mm-hmm. in a foreign country where you don't have resources, that's a yep. difficult place to be. Really and difficult. he's looking at, he, he and his cohort are looking at what, like 20 years in prison, 10 years in prison, something? Yeah, they were, um, t- they were t- 10 years in prison. Mm-hmm. And their yeah. appeals case is actually coming up on the 4th of March. Oh, so it is. Yeah, I remember it because like, what? I don't yeah. want to spoil anything, but I, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So they are trying to appeal. Mm-hmm. They are trying to appeal, and they have been trying to appeal for quite some time. Well, so Moria is kind of a hellish place on yes. Earth, especially at its height, where there were what, like you said, twenty thousand uh, immigrants there, yeah. and what mm-hmm. would essentially amounts to an open air prison on this island, where it's often quite hot. There aren't really or cold. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like there aren't resources. Mm -hmm. There isn't really infrastructure to accommodate this Mm -hmm. many people. I think there was one camp or one situation where you said there were like hundreds of people sharing one toilet. And I was just like, Yeah, most camp most camps in Greece, that's that's the case. Mm -hmm. Like five hundred people for a single toilet. That's outrageous. And so Mm -hmm. it's not uh it's not a pleasant place to be. And then you think yeah. about Greek economics, like socioeconomics and the political yeah. situation in Greece, in particular since 2008. Because yeah. as I think most of us will recall, Greece was kind of a focal point of the 2008 financial collapse in terms of what it yeah. did to Greek society, in terms yeah. of the austerity measures adopted by the Greek political system. Yeah. And the severe impacts that it had on the citizenry. You had people yeah. like committing suicide in public, elder people in mm-hmm. particular, who had yeah. kind of just lost yeah. their entire safety net and were looking yeah. at a future with no dignity at all, you know, like an end of life with no dignity at all. So really horrific. But I think it's it's important context in terms of the immigration crisis, like on yeah. Lesbos and elsewhere in the Greek islands, because you have a country that is just a few years removed from a grave economic collapse. And now you're dealing with tens of thousands of immigrants, people coming over on boats, drownings off the coast, like a serious extra national humanitarian crisis sort of washing up on its shore. That's a lot for a nation to absorb in a short span of time, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I think Uh, The way I sort of think about it or look at it is, and I think the way many Greeks think about it or look at it is, why are are these handful of islands in Greece managing an undue proportion of the care and logistics needed to make sure these refugees have a place to be and, and, and live and move their way through the immigration system that they are by law, uh, 
allowed <laughs> to, to navigate because that has what happened. You know, the Greece has the unfortunate geography of being on the edge of Europe, being relatively close to Turkey. So there's like a, a and these islands in particular. So there's like a, a pretty well worn migrant pathway from Turkey into Greece. And the rest of Europe has sort of said, oh, cool. Thank you, Greece. Like they're going to stay in Greece until they move through the asylum system, which is a many year process. And most the central Greek government in Athens has said, yeah, and we're going to, these five hotspot islands are really the place that they're going to spend most of their time. So understandably, these islanders, even ones who are really sympathetic to the refugee plight and circumstances are sort of saying, sure, but why are there 10,000 on our island of 90,000? And what the hell is Germany doing? You know, Germany is in certain ways, Germany has taken a lot of refugees, but Germany picks and chooses who and when, right? And and Germany has a lot more resources than Greece does. And there is no love lost between uh, Greeks and, and Germans and other Northern European countries because there's this very real, I mean, it's a perception and it's real that the debt crisis wasn't just a, manufactured by the, by the Greek government. It was in fact imposed upon the Greek government by the banks and, and, and politicians of Northern Europe. Greece became somewhat of a fall guy and kind of like the last domino in the financial crisis. And that the effects are still being felt. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I mean, you, there's like a poetic symmetry that I think you're aware of in the book between the United States and Greece in terms of how it occupies the popular imagination around the world yeah. with respect to uh, democratic values yeah. and like the origin stories of democracy. I think. The United States as a beacon of freedom yeah. and prosperity and democracy, that's part of the brand, or at yes, least it has yes, been. Yes. And then Greece, Greece, I think, all, you know, that would, they're, they're like the OG yeah. <laughs> uh, symbol of democracy. And right. so for you to be working this beat in the States and also working it, you know, in other ways, like in your yeah. teaching work and stuff mm -hmm. like that, but also to be a Greek a uh, person of Greek heritage yeah. going back to Greece to explore her heritage and also to explore this issue. Mm -hmm. Like th those parallels are, are yeah. interesting. And yeah. I think when you take that into consideration and then you also take into consideration the context in recent history of what was going on in Greece. And when you have, you know, as you're saying, this imposed austerity coming not only from Greek politicians, but from the wider European community, yep. it is fertile ground for ultra nationalists like the Golden Dawn Party in yep. Greece, which I remember reading about in horror, not just because their politics are abhorrent to me and scary and hateful, but also because I could see very direct parallels between what was happening there okay. and what has been happening here at home. Yep. So, financial austerity and economic collapse, that that tends to be what foments fascist, yes. ultra-nationalist, anti-immigrant environments, yep. Yep. right? Yes. Because politicians, smart politicians know that they can weave a story of who's to blame for that. 
and and immigrants are are an easy uh, are an easy villain to kind of dress up in the costume of villainry. Yeah. Well, and then then the, and on, in addition, there's also this. What's the word? I don't know. It's not ironic, but it's like you have Greece as this beacon of democracy, yeah. uh, like you know uh, historically, and this place that Europeans as you describe in the book, have historically embraced as a kind of what like a tourist destination, yeah. a way to explore that value yeah. system and the yeah. the roots of Western democracy and Western Europe in particular. But at the same time, there is this tendency among Western European nations to sort of look down their nose at Greece. Yeah. Right. As the like kind of ne'er do well, <laughs> irresponsible darker skinned, which I don't think is, uh, incidental to the whole equation, nope. you know, European uh, country yep. that might not be as deserving in their view of as much respect as say, you know, other whiter, yep. less indebted nations or whatever, like that dynamic exactly. is at play. There's like multiple dynamics at play that aren't necessarily all in concert with one another. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of all happening at once. Totally. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that this book is really concerned with is the mythologies we create, the stories we tell, which, you know, mythology, one way of looking at mythology is it's a story we create backward to explain a particular contemporary condition, right? Whether that's like, you know, when the gods cry, it rains, and then that's when our crops grow, you know, <laughs> sort of those like more, um, you know, like ancient sort of explain the world mythologies, um, or the, I don't have a job because immigrants took it. And the reason immigrants took it is because X, Y, Z happened. And, you know, that's why we need this, this, this savior God to come in and we need to elect him because he'll, he'll, he'll stop this, right. He'll, he'll, he'll change this. And certainly Greece as the kind of cradle of civilization, the birthplace of democracy, um, is, a real mythology written backward and really relied upon by Greece and many places like all around the world is, you know, to perpetuate this idea that the West is even a thing that exists. Kwame Pierre writes really beautifully about that. And I quote him in the book. So like this notion of ancient Greece props up the idea of the West. It props up this idea of white supremacy. And the fact is like, it was a really long time ago and there is no continuity between the Hellenistic ancient Greece of like the way the Parthenon is designed and talked about today and like contemporary Greece, right? Like there is no historic continuity. There was the Byzantine empire happened between then, you know, now like between then and now. So it's utilized. It's this instrument. The Hellen Hellenistic past is an instrument to help tell a story of, of exclusion and white supremacists love ancient Greece. White supremacists love ancient Greece. Hitler loved ancient Greece um, because it's the story of v valor and valiance. And again, this this more perfect time in the past where the white people kind of knew what was right and and were ruling it all. And of course, that's complete fiction. Well, I mean, speaking of complete fiction, there's a passages in the book where you describe these uh, statues from antiquity, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. from Greek antiquity, okay. which are traditionally what color? Like 
In, in our minds, they're pure white. Pure ivory. Pure they're white. They're white. Totally. And that's the Renaissance when they, when the Renaissance kind of artists kind of rediscovered this classical history. They're like, oh, this is beautiful, bare form and, you know, bare materials and, oh, like this, you know, this more perfect time. And in fact, they were painted voraciously. They were painted in all sorts of colors. And it's almost, you know, to myself included, it's sort of, you see them and you're like, what do you mean? Like there, there's some amazing reconstructions you can see online. And Mar- Margaret Talbot, the New Yorker writer, wrote a beautiful piece on this. And it's it's sort of like unnerving. It's like, no, 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 no. That's just supposed to be like a, a marble man. Like that's not supposed to be a guy with like diamond leggings of blue and purple. What? <laughs> yeah. And and so by it's, the way, it's by the way, I, I am currently wearing diamond leggings of blue and purple. And you can't see like, them, but... <laughs> I am so pleased for you. No shade to the diamond <laughs> leggings. It's just what are they doing on the ancient statue? You know, I, I got to say, I got to say that was news to me. Yeah. Like it's I missed. Right. I think of Greek antiquity and the statues of Greek antiquity. I'm seeing white statues in my mind. But back in the day when they were created, they were painted. And probably the the skin color was not Mm -hmm. white in most cases, I would imagine. The writer Nell, if Irvin Painter talks about there was no whiteness, there was no even concept of whiteness in in the ancient world. And in fact, it was a crossroads with people from living all over the world. There were Ethiopians there. There were people from what we would now consider, I mean, people who who were from what is now Ethiopia. There were people from Egypt. There were people like all over the place, right? There was class and there was, but there wasn't a notion of race. So it's just so frustrating that these, like, you know, we, again, we call it restorative nostalgia. So the restorative nostalgics, they love to harken back to these mythical perfect eras when yep. things were better yep. and there was order and there was racial purity, which is either explicitly or implicitly stated right in their, yep. in their particular communications. But uh, they don't see themselves as myth makers. No. That's what's so crazy to me. They yep. don't see this as a myth, you know, like a mythology yep. that they're creating whole cloth. They believe that their project is all about the truth and the yep, truth that's has what been Svetlana, yeah that's what Svetlana Boim says they believe their project is about truth and that's what's really troubling because when someone believes something to be really true that is what animates them and that is what motivates them and they they feel that they are seeing the world clearly and the rest of us are not but it's so easily disprovable it is but if it's based on feeling it's really hard to disprove feeling i mean listen i am with you but i think you know if you feel something to be true, that there was this time that was better and my grandpa, it was better for him. And I used to have a job, you know, or coffee, you know, I write about this guy in the book, coffee costs two times as much as it used to cost, you know, then you have enough little data points that help you bolster that feeling. And feeling animates us, unfortunately, a lot more than fact as human beings, I would say. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, clearly, right? It's because it, it also, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very complicated issue. I think feeling and emotion and inherent prejudice and bias have a lot to do with it. But I also think there's a digital media component to it. The yeah. algorithms, you know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are all sorts of things that are helping erase fact, right? And erase the availability of fact and obscure fact so that we can focus more on feeling because we can exploit feeling for money or for votes. I can't stand this this idea. Well, it's like that's just what my gut that's what my gut mm-hmm. says. You know, like, well, my my gut says yeah. that there we yeah. should have no yeah. borders and we should live as like one big happy human family. So right. what are you gonna do right. with that? You know? Yeah. So there's yep. a line yep. speaking of Svetlana Boyum that I want to read because I feel like it speaks to the title of the book and the core theme of the whole project. 
She writes, the ruin is not merely something that reminds us of the past. It is also a, rem- a reminder of the future when our present becomes history. Yeah. And, and, and it's going to at least be some remarkably different shape than what it's taking now, right? And Svetlana Boym writes really beautifully about this. But we know this, right? Like every place is a layer of, uh, it's not just an absolute. Every place and thus every kind of identity constructed related to or around place is is temporary. Like it's, there's, there's layers upon layers upon layers on that. Everything has been something else before. And so this notion again of a static past is totally fictional. And even the notion of a present that we can fix in place is fictional. Well, and speaking of uh, Svetlana Boyum again, because she figures so prominently into the book and is kind of a model for you in terms of how to intellectualize this, right? How to think about this stuff. She was a Russian immigrant who like in a stopover between Russia and the United States stayed in Vienna. And there's Mm -hmm. a great description of, it's like a, it was kind of like a monastery. Was that how she described it? Like a nunnery or something? It was this church-like facility. Yeah. It was a sort of abandoned building where they were putting all of these people. And um, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a temporary stopover from refugees going to the United or going to various places. Um, She was ultimately ended up in Boston from, from the USSR. And, um, she describes going back to look for it and it's not on any maps. She can't find it. It's There's no records of it. And she finally figures out where it is and goes back. And it, she just wrote a beautiful essay about this that I that I sort of um, pull, pull from um, in, in the book. And um, yeah, she, she called it sort of a non-place. Like a tunnel. Um, it was like a, I think she describes it as like a yeah. tunnel that she was in. It's, I don't know, it brought home like the physical reality of immigration for people who are trapped in these like interstitial zones, you know, where they're, they're kind of like stateless, yeah, they're totally. stateless beings. And a lot of times it's a prison like situation. Maybe you're restri- restricted mm-hmm. in your movement. Yes. In the case of Svetlana Boym, it seems like in Vienna, she was like almost entirely indoors. And then, and yeah, then suddenly, totally. you know, the paperwork situation gets figured out. They put you on a train or a boat and you're gone and you just spent like six months or a year yeah. of your life in this kind yeah. of tunnel in Vienna. That's very odd. You know, yeah. it's a very odd. It is. It's a limbo and, and you're not in charge of your own reality or your own timeline. You're, you're stuck in this limbo at the mercy of so many structures <laughs> beyond your control. And there was a film that I believe she made going back to visit, Right. There was a, a, a an artist, a Greek artist, interestingly named Maria Zervos, filmed her and made a film and of sort of an, a really beautiful, interesting artistic film that sort of spliced the photographs that Svetlana Boym took there, um, with just kind of following her around as she's kind of investigating this ruin of this place that she stayed oh, right. um, many, many years ago that she finally could map. Right, she could finally find. Where, is the like it's like a museum kind of thing? You see it a museum or is it online? Can you walk? Exactly. Yeah. Which I. Like just sort of was so shocked to find it because I'd been reading so much about Boyman when I went back to Greece in 2021, when you could finally go back after the pandemic, there it was. There was this exhibit about Svetlana Boym. I was pretty, it was a synchronicity. (laughs) So we've talked about uh, Greece and I think readers can go and explore the rest of it. You know, we've touched upon COVID and it was certainly a complicating factor. Like, you know, there's a lot more to explore where that is concerned with respect to immigration. Obviously COVID affected everybody in a, you know, a multitude of ways, but there are spots in the book where you 
diverge from the Greek narrative. You go up to Norway near the border with Russia. Mm-hmm. You also write about forests and the way that trees can teach us about how to coexist, which I quite liked. That was like the the hippie, like uh, you know, sidebar in the book or one of them. And you know, when it comes to borders, there's a a way that you describe yourself with respect to borders. I think it happens in multiple places, but I'm thinking of it in particular where you're in Norway kind of looking at this fence, like you're looking into Russia, standing on the Norwegian side of the line. And you say, quote, the urge to stand at the border and look at it for a while. This is something you notice about yourself. Whenever you get near a border, you just sort of want to watch it. Yeah. What is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes from this, it's this bizarre paradox of the border that it's this total fiction. It's a total made up thing. Like it looks exactly the same on this side than it does on that side. Or it looks remarkably different, but it, it only because you're allowed to build on that side or you're not allowed to build on this side because it's a different country. But it, the paradox of a border is that it is a it is a very a line of very real consequence, and yet it is completely made up. And so I think there's this instinct to just sort of be at it because that paradox is so confounding. Yeah, you just like like you described wanting to like just put one foot over the line. I think that's very human. Yeah. If I'm if I'm at a, if I'm at a border, I sort of want to cross it, like even yeah. just to like jump over and yeah. say I was in Russia. <laughs> but totally, but it, it's meaningless. You know, it's ultimately just this. Yeah, it's it's so bizarre, and I don't think yeah. most of us yeah. spend much time standing at a border. I'd like the only thing. Yeah, I have done a fair amount of that. <laughs> right. But I'm thinking like, you know, the more common experience, I think, for Americans anyway, is to be driving on a road trip and to cross a state line. Yeah. And there is right. kind of a similar vibe where you're like, oh, well, now I'm in Utah, you know, <laughs> like maybe, maybe right. you jump, right. jump uh, out of the car. Welcome to Utah. Yeah. Take, take yeah. a selfie with the sign. Yeah. But it, right. They're odd. Right. These spaces. Well, it's funny, though, because the, the, the border, we do end up staring at the border and you pointed this out earlier, which is that we end up staring at it on television when it's like, look at the border, look at the border, look at the border. Right. So, but, but again, our, we're, we're guided where to look and how to see it. Yeah. We're only shown. It's very mediated uh, staring. Uh, yeah. and, and also like we're shown like a very small sliver of yep. the, the reality down there. So yep. uh, speaking of which, you know, there is an, also a section of the book where you're talking about overland migration from South America to the United States and the incredibly arduous path that so many people, not just South Americans, but it, it, that's like a pipeline, right? People come from Pakistan, people come from all over the world and then wind up trying to move overland through South and Central America and up into Mexico before crossing over yep. into the United States. Yeah. And I can't let you go without talking about the the <laughs> Darien Gap because yeah. it's so uh, haunting to me. The story of this mm-hmm. this Indian woman, I think she's from India originally, uh-huh. who yeah. has become yeah. a sort of myth uh, among yep. migrants passing through this section of, I believe it's in Colombia. Is that right? Yeah. Like the jungle mm-hmm. between Colombia and Panama, like the mountainous jungles between Colombia and Panama yeah. that are incredibly difficult to traverse terrain. Yeah. Yes. So tell us yeah. about this woman yeah. in the Darien Gap, this mythical woman. I don't know. Is she real? Like, what, what's yeah. where do you land on that? I don't know either. I, I don't know either. I think that that, though, again, that's like a perfect example of why it was so satisfying to write the book version of this because she got cut out. So I'll tell the story and this didn't make it into the piece I was reporting at the time. And yet I got to put it in the book in part because this book is not 
purely, I mean, of course, this is like a very well fact-checked, researched book, but there are elements of it that are looking at questions of mythologies and stories that maybe dwell in the imaginary, but are meaningful in the sense that like, the space of the human imaginary is meaningful, right? Um, so anyway, to unabstract that, the story is that I was hearing a lot when I was in Tapachula on the border of uh, Mexico and Guatemala and Chiapas was the story, I heard it a few different times and then I would keep asking people about it, that there's a story of someone in the Darien Gap who was this woman who basically was walking and could not walk any further. Um, the way they described it is like, she was a heavy set woman, so she could not walk any further. She had a little girl and she said, you guys have to take her, I'm staying. And this is, I mean, you know, this this happens. People say, I can't go on or they break their leg and the group leaves them. And that happens in the desert, that happens all over the place. And it's horrifying um, for everyone involved. So she says, I can't, in, in the story, the story goes that she says, I can't go on, take my daughter. And she stays and she just sort of waits to die, but she doesn't die the story goes. She figures out, she scrounges for food and, and she lives, but she doesn't move forward. She doesn't go back to where she's come from. She doesn't move forward. She sort of dwells there. And the way I, I sort of read it is it's like, it is this mythology that's created. It's this mythic story. She's sort of this protector spirit and a trickster spirit. Sometimes she'll leave food out for you. Sometimes she'll take your food when you weren't looking. So there's a story that this woman is there sort of not moving forward, not moving backward and sort of watching over and sort of protecting and sort of messing with in this trickster, trickster way, the people who pass through. And I was really interested in that story of like, what does it mean to the people who are telling it and who are believing it? Why is this a story that's been passed on? You know, of course I'm interested in how true it is or what the original kernel of truth was, but there is also something liberating of like, I will never know, you know, I will never, that is not something I can get to the bottom of. So I got to reckon with it as, as a myth that's trying to explain something or serve some purpose to the people passing through, which I think it's comforting, this notion that someone has survived that place, that someone is there around kind of like watching us. Um, and I don't mean to say that everyone who passes through the Darien Gap has like heard the story. Um, it's just that many of the people I talked to had heard that story and were telling me that story. Uh, I loved it. You know, the, like just the myth, like the mythological aspect of it. And it's important work that you're doing in this book, telling these stories and trying to wrap your head around the immigration crisis, not just here at home, but globally, and trying to make sense of what we're headed towards globally. Yeah. Like this is, Completely. feels like the beginning. Yeah. This is like the first act of a, what's going to be a long story as we Completely. hurdle into the future. Is that what we're doing? Are we hurdling? Yeah. <laughs> I think we're hurdling. I think we're hurdling. I, I, yes. <laughs> I think that's a great word for what we're doing for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. Hang, hang on everybody. But, uh, it's great to meet you. <laughs> really? Con congratulations so to meet you too. Thank you. on uh, a map of future ruins. And is there anything else in the pipeline book wise? Like, are you working on new projects or is this it for now? I am. I'm doing a, a number of magazine stories. Again, it's not like I've sworn off journalism at all. I just needed to sort of expand the lens a little bit and ask myself what I was doing. But I am working on a, like a book link essay for the independent publisher Transit Books on climate grief and the art of memorials. And I have a number of magazine stories in the pipeline, which I'm really excited about. All right. Well, Lauren, it's great to meet you. Congratulations and best of luck on all that you have going on. Thank you. And likewise, thank you for what you do for writers and for books and for readers. Okay, you guys, there we go with today's conversation. That was Lauren Markham. Her new book is called A Map of Future Ruins, available from Riverhead Books. For more on Lauren Markham and her work, please visit laurenmarkham.info. 
You can also follow her on Twitter and Instagram. Once again, the new book is called A Map of Future Ruins, available now wherever books are sold from Riverhead. Go get your copy immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you want to sign up for my weekly email newsletter, you can do that over at bradlisty.substack.com. It is free. If you appreciate this program, if you like it, if you listen to it, If you want to join the other people Patreon community, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you want to join the other people book club, you can do that at otherppl.com. And if you want to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that as well at otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to help me out, please give this show a rating wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Rate the show, review the show. It helps the show find new listeners. Last but not least, I have a novel out. My latest book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if that sounds good, if you want to read my book, you can read my book. Again, it is a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right. So coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with Sloan Crosley. She has a new memoir out called Grief is for People. And I am very excited to share that one with you in just a couple of days. So, stay tuned.